one would expect that is Herb Alpert and the Two Motor Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. The listener will not be surprised to learn that the World Series is happening. Uh, and the listener will be even less surprised to learn that this edition of Fangraphs Audio, which features managing editor Dave Cameron, also features Dave Cameron analyzing that World Series. How Clay Buckholtz uh, threw his fastball at 86 to 88 miles per hour is one thing we discussed. How Mike Matheny is perhaps suffering from recency bias is another thing we discussed. And speaking more broadly, it's, it's probably fair to say that what we do is we go to the heart of baseball, like a surgeon, like a surgeon who opens up your chest and goes to your heart, except if your heart were a baseball. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features Dave Cameron analyzing games uh, three and four of the World Series, and it begins right now. Like if you were in a, like are we talking like Venezuelan winter league? Uh, you know I looked for that, but I, I couldn't find it in my channel listings. You could, yeah. You're gonna have yeah. to you're gonna have to steal that via the internet. Right. That yeah, is so actually not... uh, that is sometimes available. I know Harry Pavlidis. I don't know if I'm if I should name names, but Harry Pavlidis is very good at finding links to that. Uh, right. Yes. Uh, sorry, Harry, if we've just outed you and, and, and yeah, the internet police comes <laughs> shut down your so, stream. So arrested. He yeah. is usually good at finding uh, winter league stuff. Right. I would imagine this isn't the kind of thing that uh, the internet police care too much about. No. Yeah, they're definitely not listening to this. Yeah. Um. Well, hey, listen. So, so World Series is going, but I should mention. Venezuelan Winter League, or maybe it was the Dominican, whatever, wherever it was. That's a uh, that's for example where Scott Casimir seemed to come out of nowhere again. Yes, right. I mean, these things kind of sort of matter a little bit when the World Series ends. Yeah, right. The World Series hasn't ended yet. Is that what? You're, yes, that's <laughs> basically what I'm getting at. Yeah. Okay. Hey, listen. <clears throat> so let's start starting about the. Let's see. We haven't talked since uh, maybe Thursday. It was, but and so two games have happened in the meantime. Uh, uh, um, both uh, uh, both sort of offer quite a bit to talk about. Uh, um, I watched. Let's see. Oh yeah, Clay Buckholtz started. We're talking on Monday now. Clay Buckholtz started last night for the Red Sox. Yeah. And he was throwing. Slop. Yeah, he was throwing maybe what like on average like four or five miles per hour slower than he usually does. Yeah, maybe more like six. I mean, I think he in the first inning he sat eighty six to eighty eight, and he normally sits about ninety two. Yeah. Okay. So that's crazy, right? So yeah. and actually, this was a point made by Tibbet Carver, and this is this is correct. There, if if you're a pitcher who throws eighty eight all the time, and you've had success as a major leaguer, then well, there's reason to believe that you'll continue to have success. Throwing 88. Yeah. But, but if you throw 92, 93, as, um, as, uh, Buckholtz does with his, I guess, two seamer and four seamer respectively, and then you're throwing 86 to 88, this is not a good thing. Right. In this case, I mean, it's not so much that velocity is the overriding determining factor in, in, uh, you know, pitching well. As we know, the guys can pitch really well without good velocity. The key is that velocity here is basically a proxy for, uh, health. And so Clay Buckholtz, obviously not healthy. I mean, we knew that going into the start. Uh, but it wasn't just that he wasn't throwing as hard. His pitches weren't moving that much. He was leaving pitches up in the zone. There were a few, like, 85-mile-an-hour meatballs that were hanging belt high that he got away with. And uh, so it's not so much that 
you know, Buckholtz for one night had turned himself into Mark Burley. Uh, it's more that he had turned himself into a batting practice pitcher. And, you know, the Cardinals should have teed him up. Yeah, and what, they just had a bad batting practice session, essentially? I mean, you know, I think Buckholtz was hitting his spots in terms of not pitching in the middle of the zone. Uh, but he still, he got away with a few pitches for sure. Uh, I think there were some, some meatballs that they, uh, they certainly could have done more with than they, than they should have, or than they ended up doing. So, I think overall the, the Cardinals just had, you know, four innings of, of poor hitting against a pitcher that, uh, gave them an opportunity to score. You know who, see, who didn't really seem to like it at all was David Freeze. He struck out on like a two-seamer on the outside corner, I, and then, he seemed only to swing at pitches that were out of the strike zone against Clay Buckles. Yeah, he hasn't been very good this year. <laughs> I think that's one of the, the kind of the untold stories of the Cardinals is, you know, as we talk about how good they are about finding players from nowhere, and Freese was a playoff hero a couple years ago after, you know, they got him as like a minor prospect in a nothing trade, uh, and he turned into a pretty good third baseman. David Freese was basically replacement level all season long, and he's been atrocious in the postseason. Uh, sometimes when you, you know, like pull miraculous performances out of, you know, marginal talented players, they go back to being marginally talented players in opportune times. And, yeah, it looks like a lot of his value, the, the poor value, was from on the defensive end because he was a roughly major league hitter. Is, is there anything to suggest that he's not that great of a defender? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, watching him, you see that he doesn't have a ton of range. He's not that athletic. I mean, he's not a guy who moves all that well. Um, you know, I mean, obviously there's single season fluctuations in terms of, uh, you know, defensive metrics, but I think, you know, I've never been that impressed with Freeze defensively. I don't think the Cardinals have been that impressed with Freeze defensively. They, you know, when they want to put their best defensive lineup out there, they would move Matt Carpenter to third and put Colton Wong at second. So I think they understand that, you know, Freeze is a little bit of a defensive liability. And, you know, he doesn't have the kind of bat that, uh, forces you to put him in the lineup, um, in order to, you know, justify his defense. Uh, you know, if he's a league average hitter, he's not a very good defensive third baseman. That's not a guy you necessarily have to put in the lineup. But he's uh, handsome and locally born, and uh, has been has been uh, terrific in the playoffs previously. Yeah, uh, all those things are true. Uh, yeah. I think you know when we look at the success of David Fries from 2009 through 2012, it is heavily dependent on Babbitt. Uh, his I think his batting average of balls in play prior to this season was 360 or something like that for the career for his career. Uh, you know, he's a guy who you could say just hits the ball harder than normal, but uh, slow, slower players with a 360 BABIP should be looked at skeptically, and I think it maybe shouldn't have been that hard to see Freese's decline coming. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask about it. What sort of research has been done on the relationship between uh, speed and BABIP? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly some. Uh, I think we know in, in general that guys who can get a lot of infield hits uh, can really uh, outperform their BABIP. Michael Bourne is a great example of a guy who gets a lot of button hits and infield hits and, you know, uh, continually posts high BABIPs even though he doesn't really hit the ball all that hard. Uh, but it's, it's just one variable. I mean, Miguel Cabrera, I think, also has a very high BABIP and not not exactly a fast guy. Uh, you know, Joey Votto is the same thing. Uh, you can you can run a high BABIP for a ver- variety of reasons, hitting a lot of ground balls, uh, avoiding infield flies, hitting a lot of line drives obviously helps even though it's not the most sustainable thing in the world. Um, and then being fast and getting a lot of infield hits, uh, and then, you know, random variation. You can do it through any of those kind right. of ways. Uh, speed helps, and, you know, if you're good at all the other things and you're fast, like, you know, say Ichiro Suzuki, uh, then you can maybe sustain this for longer than most. Right. Um, 
So Mike Trout, I assume, uh, falls under those same. Uh, yeah, right. Mike Trout, also a good. I mean, he's not necessarily a huge ground ball guy. Uh, he hits he the ball hits, hard, though. He hits the ball hard, and he's very fast. Right. Uh, with, yeah. You know, good things. Okay, so uh, that was going to be the we've discussed David Freeze, and that's going to be the end of the show. <laughs> the, um, no, uh, yeah. So, so Buckle. So, so I, I'm curious just about the decision. Is it just because there's nothing else, uh, n- no other pitcher to throw? Because I, I imagine John Farrell. Uh, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt because he's hired by the Red Sox. He's been in baseball for a while. He seems to have had quite a bit of success. People seem to trust him. He's made a few questionable calls, perhaps in this series, in terms of how he's utilized pitchers, etc. But is he just sitting over there just thinking, oh, my God, I hope we get four innings out of Buckles? Yeah, I think that's probably pretty close to what they were thinking. I mean, you know, before the game, they talked about six or seven. That was never going to happen, and they knew that. I think, you know, they I don't know that they knew the extent to which Buckles' stuff was going to be diminished when the game started. They've seen him throw side sessions, uh, but, you know, you, you you kind of expect there to be some kind of uh, bump when the when the game turns on and you know there's some kind of uh, adrenaline hits the pitcher. Uh, you know, in his last start where Buckles has been diminished, you know, he came off and disabled this in September. His stuff hasn't really been the same. Uh, his you know he hasn't been that good uh, since coming off the DL, but he's he's his stuff has been better than it was last night. And even like in in the ALCS when he started, he was sitting in the low 90s. I don't think that if they knew that he was going to sit at 87, <laughs> that they would have put him out there, to be honest with you. And I think once they saw that he was sitting 87, uh, their expectations for how long he would go became even more diminished. Wait, is there a version of reality, though, where the smart thing to do is, like, as soon as you see that he can't th- throw the ball over – well, he hit 90 a couple times. Where yeah, you see he, like, he popped 90, yeah. Yeah, where you see is like 90 is going to be his absolute fastest. Is there – is there a version of reality where just walking out to the mound immediately and be like, no, is, is the right choice? Yeah, I mean, I actually was thinking in the first inning when he was throwing slop, I put out on Twitter, that I thought at that point Ryan Debster should start warming up. Uh, just because, you know, you're going through a pretty good lineup, and Dempster, or uh, Buckholz, it wouldn't have been that shocking had he given up four or five runs in that first inning. I mean, sitting 86 to 88 without a lot of movement, if he had missed his spots and left a couple pitches over the plate, you know, it could have been double homer homer, and you know, all of a sudden the Cardinals have an insurmountable lead. Uh, you know, in the World Series, I don't know that you want to take those risks, but Buckholz, to his credit, was hitting his spots and kind of getting pitches on the corners, and uh, you know, he got a few pretty generous strike calls from the umpire, and he was able to worm his way through four innings. But I mean, this certainly could have gone the other way, and uh, letting him pitch with that kind of stuff in the World Series could have looked like a terrible decision in hindsight. Now listen, I was going to bring up uh, uh, Sullivan wrote for today, Jeff Sullivan wrote for today, a piece about the, uh, I guess, Mike Matheny's reluctance, uh, failure yep. to use Randy Choate against David Ortiz, I guess, was it the fifth inning? Sixth. Uh, sixth inning, all right. And uh, I was going to talk about that in a second. The, one of the things, uh, one thing that drew attention uh, last night was David Ortiz calling together a team huddle in the dugout. Um, this is great in terms of constructing a narrative because it's exciting, especially since he had a really good game and almost right after he did that, uh, the Red Sox took the lead via Johnny Gomes home run. Do, do we know, do we know anything about, I know Sam Miller wrote a piece for ESPN magazine recently about the way personalities could or could not affect, um, how a team wins. Do we know anything about team huddles? 
I mean, we saw this last year with Hunter Pence, right? Like, Pence became, like, a postseason phenomenon because before the game he would uh, get the crazy eyes and he would rally everyone <laughs> together and they would do, like, a, you know, high school football kind of charge onto the field after he yelled at the ball. Uh, and Hunter Pence was given a, a lot of credit for being a team leader. And then this year they had Hunter Pence for the entire season and he was, and the Giants were terrible. <laughs> uh, you know, so I think it's one of those things where it's easy to identify it in a narrow sample of like the postseason and then ascribe good things that happen uh to good teams who've been selected to be good teams because they're already in the postseason uh to the to the clubhouse leader and the guy who's calling huddles and doing these kinds of things and then just totally put the story away uh when over the course of a longer sample it seems to not matter. Right. So uh I think, you know, David Ortiz calling huddles can't be bad for the Red Sox. I'm sure they his teammates love him, I'm sure uh, I don't think there's anything destructive about what he's doing. Uh, at the same time, David Ortiz has been a really good postseason player for a long time. I don't think we've ever seen him do this before. The Red Sox have won two World Series, so. Yeah, they did okay then, too. Um, actually, uh, regarding that Miller article, one thing he didn't, what do we got? We got dog action? Uh, yeah, the dog just decided she wanted to come say hi. Okay, that's fine. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, one of the things uh, Sam Miller did mention uh, was the fact that uh, for certain teams, or for any team, I guess, having a bilingual superstar with a strong personality can be important because that way you unite. You have the fewer, uh, I guess, uh, fewer d- div- division lines, right? He can unite. He can unite all the players on the team. Yeah, I mean, there's probably something to having a guy who's, like, the largest voice in the clubhouse being able to talk to everyone rather than having to have multiple leaders without, you know, within several ethnic groups. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think you know, a lot of these veteran Hispanic players know enough English to get along. And, you know, I don't think that, they're, in general, they're just totally clueless when their uh, English-speaking teammates are, are yelling at them. I think they can generally pick up the idea of, of go, go team go. I mean, these are generally universal yeah. kind of things. I mean, I, I don't speak, uh, uh, most European languages, but when soccer fans start chanting things, I generally know that they're in, encouraging their team to score a goal or, <laughs> you know, punch the referee in the nuts or whatever it is that right. European soccer fans want their team to do. Yeah, there's a lot of that. You're right. Yes. You're exactly right. You've, you've, you've correctly summarized, uh, the, the larger part of European football. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, oh yeah, so David Ortiz though, or, or, or I mean, with regard to David Ortiz, there was that reluctance on Matheny's part to bring in uh, Choate, and it seemed yeah. as though his basic argument was um, uh, because Ortiz has gotten a hit of both um, yeah. Choate and Segrist that uh, we we don't really think we're just going to ignore him for the moment. I mean, we're going to just put him on base. Yeah, I, I think so. Matheny and John Farrell to an extent, but more, more Matheny are, I think, really struggling with recency bias in this series. Uh, Matheny has basically decided that because Ortiz homered off Kevin Segrist and then got a single off Randy Choate, uh, therefore the lefty-righty matchups are going to go away and he's going to just not pitch to David Ortiz apparently. I mean, considering the walk that, you know, walking in last night pushed the go-ahead run into scoring position. That's, like, kind of a crazy place to issue an intentional walk. And while, you know, Yadier Molina didn't stand up and put his hand outside, that was an intentional walk. Uh, if you've gotten to the point where you believe that a guy with huge platoon splits, 
uh, is not a good matchup against your lefty specialist, who's maybe one of the best left-handed specialists in baseball, and you are better off walking the, the run into scoring position, uh, you are overestimating uh, the results of the previous uh, few games. And I think this is one of Matheny's flaws, is he is pretty significantly overreacting to what has happened recently and not trusting the guys who got him here. Uh, I think if you had gone to Randy Choate versus David Ortiz last night, there's a good chance Johnny Gomes would have uh, been hitting the lead off the next inning with no one on base. And even if he had gone yard uh, against Seth Maness, it would have been a one-run home run and not a three-run home run, and the Cardinals end up losing by two runs. So uh, I think that, you know, for Mike Matheny, uh, he seems like a, you know, a good manager. I'm sure that he's uh, very good at things that we don't see, but this is a... Um, uh, a little bit of a strategic problem in believing that the, la- the events of the last few days should overrule everything we saw all season and going away from, you know, what is a pretty favorable matchup for you uh, in order to put the winning run in scoring position simply because you didn't like the results of it that one last time. Um, if, if recency bias is, uh, is maybe something from which Mike Bethany suffers, um, if we say if we do establish that as being the case, do we think there's a possibility that we see Colton Wong pinch running again? Yeah, I mean, I think you know the reality is they don't have that many other options, right? I mean, Alan Craig is going to start on the bench and he can't run, uh, and they're playing with a shorter bench anyway because they're carrying 12 pitchers, two of whom Mike Matheny won't use, in Shelby Miller and Edward Mujica. So. Uh, you know, I think if the Cardinals had it to do over again and they knew how Matheny was going to use his bullpen, they probably would have carried Adron Chambers as a pinch runner. Wait, 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 what's the, what's the reason for not using Shelby Miller? Uh, so, I mean, I think the, there's an unspoken, uh, belief that he's hurt or his stuff is dramatically diminished. So in September, after running 20% strikeout rates all month, every month, all season long, his strikeout rate in September was like 10%. Uh, he, he certainly seemed to be losing effectiveness. And, you know, he's, well, despite being on the postseason roster for all three rounds, he's pitched a grand total of one inning in the division series uh, three weeks ago. Hasn't taken the mound since. Uh, at this point, I think it's pretty clear that they just don't trust Shelby Miller to pitch, and he won't be on the mound unless there's, a you know, an 18-inning game that forces them because then their only other option would be a position player. So they have two pitchers. You said um Mujica. is kind of the same, yeah. He, he won't be used either. Mujica Miller who are essentially relegated to mob of duty. And then they have Alan Craig, who can bat but can't run. Yeah, uh, field. Do they have any, <laughs> do they have any other uh, players who, who are basically useless? I mean, Tony Cruz is on the roster as Yadier Molina's backup, but uh, he's only going to play if Yadier Molina dies. So, I mean, you have a backup catcher who's l- literally only around in case of debilitating injury. He won't play in any other circumstance. Uh, and you have, you know, Craig can't run or be a defensive replacement. <laughs> so uh, you have Shane Robinson, who's kind of your fourth outfielder and uh, pinch hitter for the pitcher, and then you have Colton Long, who's, you know, your pinch runner, defensive replacement, double switch guy, and that's their entire bench, essentially. Uh, I think, you know, the Cardinals do a lot of things really well. The way they set their playoff roster was dumb. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Colton Wong got pick, picked off to end the game. Yes. That's, you don't want to do that. That's not, no. <laughs> he didn't uh, when, when you're down by two and Carlos Beltran is at the plate, uh, and you that run is not the time. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you literally, your entire goal is to not make an out on the bases. To get picked off there is pretty awful. So what, ha- what, well, I mean, I saw replays of this. The idea is just he's his momentum is carrying, even though he's not like it's not like an aggressive lead he's taking. Yeah. Is he just stepping at the wrong time for, relative to when Uehara makes his throw over? 
Yeah, so, I mean, after the game, Wong said that he slipped trying to get back to the bag. That doesn't necessarily match up with what I saw. I mean, watching on TV, to me, it looked like it was just perfect timing from Uehara, is that Uehara began his move to second base at the exact time that, that kind of Wong started floating towards and had taken kind of a, a hop step towards right. second base. Uh, and so, you know, Wong was in the air as Uehara was spinning, and then when he landed and he went to plant to come back, it was too late because the ball was already on its way there. Uh, I think it was just kind of, you know, miraculously perfect timing from the Red Sox. Uh, and in Wong's case, uh, he probably shouldn't have ever left the contact with the ground. I mean, he probably should have just shuffled along instead of kind of taking that uh, airbound hop step. Uh, because, you know, realistically, his lead, the size lead he got mattered not at all. Right, yeah. So, yeah, so I guess there you would uh, – uh, I, I didn't play baseball in the high minors or anything, but I assume that there's a – you'll argue for a, like a, more of a shuffling step, a shuffling lead. Or a walking lead, I think is generally what it's called. Is, okay. uh, you, you basically just take a few steps, uh, but you don't, you don't, you never leave the ground. You right. just kind of put one foot in front of the other. Okay. Um, so, uh, the game, the, the other game, I guess, uh, Saturday night, um, that was crazy. You wrote about the obstruction call. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's probably been covered too in depth. I, I think your, your, your conclusion though, if, if I'm not mistaken, was the umpires, made the call correctly relative to how the rule is written, but probably the rule needs to be written. Yeah, I mean, I think, so, in thinking about it since I published it, I would almost walk back my comments a little bit in that I think that we have seen in in other parts of baseball that we are okay as a game or as fans of the game with umpires not being beholden strictly to what the rule book defines as the rules and using reasonable human judgment to uh, kind of in part the outcome that everyone thinks is fair. So, um, you know, the neighborhood play, I think, is a pretty good example of this, right? Like, no one really has a huge problem with the neighborhood play because it keeps second baseman healthy and it allows, uh, you know, for more double plays without, you know, guys getting stretched off the field. So when the second baseman's maybe not standing on the base, but he's close to it and the, the throw beat the runner, we just all kind of accept that the runner was out, even though the second baseman's not actually touching the base and by definition of the rule, the runner is safe. But we, we allow the umpire to say, you know what, I think the reasonable standard here uh, overrules what the rule book actually says. And, uh, you know, I think in looking at what we consider obstruction, uh, it is surprising to me that the, the reaction after the game was so swift in interpreting the letter of the law and saying we can only go by what the rule book says, and the rule book clearly states this kind of play, Alan Craig or, uh, you know, um, Will, uh, Middlebrooks. Will Middlebrooks, right, uh, inter- interfered with Alan Craig's ability to run, um, when at the same time, catchers receive the ball, stand in the baseline, and intentionally block the path of the runner all the time, and no one cries obstruction, even though there's nothing in the rule book that says the catcher's allowed to uh, block the baseline and just stand completely in the path of the runner when he's already fielded the ball from or fielded the throw. Um, so I think that there's a lot of examples of, of times where we're okay with the rule book being slightly modified uh, and and the umpire is not going by the letter of the law. Um, and in this case, I think you know maybe there should be at least in the future 
allowance for the umpires to say, you know what, he wasn't trying to obstruct. He was laying on the ground. <laughs> he, he did not have a chance to move out of the way in the half second between when the ball went down the line and when Craig started trying to run home. We're not going to call obstruction on him for laying there. Right. Although uh, it should be noted, if you can't get up more quickly than Alan Craig, then maybe uh, maybe you haven't given it your best effort. Yeah, I think that, you know, Craig had a motivation to get up very quickly and Middlebrooks, uh, you know, did not have the same motivation. Uh, well, Middlebrooks you know, probably thought he had lost the game for his team by not catching the ball. Well, I think, you know, in Middlebrooks' case, his job would be to get up and determine what's happening and maybe, like, return to third base in case there's a pickle or something. Uh, Craig's, you know, role there is to get up and run home as fast as possible. So if, even if they had gotten up uh, at the same rate of speed, Craig would be the one trying to advance toward the plate. Middlebrooks would just kind of be, you know, standing where he was standing, uh, where, you know, I guess if you're going to say Middlebrooks was in his way, uh, Middlebrooks has to be allowed to stand somewhere, right? Like, we can't just say uh, the defenders can never be in the fielder's way, which means they have to evacuate the field entirely. I mean, outside of, like, running into the dugout, I'm not exactly sure what Middlebrooks could have done. And I don't think we want the reasonable standard to be, like, uh, when a base runner is attempting to score, all the fielders have to leave the field of play to allow him to score. <laughs> I believe the, the word teleport is the, that's the one you used. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I think you know when you look at if you like used a stopwatch, uh, you would have seen that the time between Middlebrooks uh, diving for the ball and Craig tripping over him was uh, you know not a reasonable amount of time to expect Middlebrooks to have gotten out of Craig's way. Right. So. Essentially what we're saying is we want this rule enforced, and again, going forward in the future, I think the umpires, given the way the rule is written and how baseball's always uh, been umpired, they didn't really have a choice in this situation, but going forward, if we want to say that a, a defender has no chance to not obstruct, uh, that doesn't seem like an outcome that we're, I, I'm particularly interested in continuing. So listen, in that game, you said that uh, if, if Mathis made mistakes – um, as a manager during the World Series, the first four games of the World Series so far, uh, it's probably from um, suffering uh, too much from recency bias. Um, it, what is the explanation that you would give then for John Farrell not, uh, I should say, letting uh, Brandon Workman hit for himself with his team tied uh, in the what in the top of the top of the ninth of a World Series game? Yeah, so I think, I mean, Farrell's explanation after the game, he basically admitted he screwed up, uh, and shouldn't, it shouldn't have happened. So, I mean, I don't think Farrell himself would even defend this decision, but I think what he was, what he said was he made the mistake on is he should have done a double switch, where Jared Saltolamaki had made the last out of the eighth inning when they put Workman in, because they wanted to get multiple innings from Workman, uh, because they expected to not score off Trevor Rosenthal, and they didn't want to go to Uhara too early, uh, they should have double switched in David Ross, uh, so that the next inning, Ross would have been due up to hit and Workman's spot would have been nine places away and then they could have gotten multiple innings out of Workman, uh, without having the pitcher's spot due up. I think, the, you know, that's a reasonable expectation, but at the same time, for an American League manager to anticipate that situation, uh, a little bit tricky. I think once he got into the situation where they'd only gotten the inning from Workman, uh, they knew that, uh, there were some good hitters coming up for the Cardinals the next inning, uh, Uehara was probably going to pitch in the near future anyway. They should have just swallowed their pride and said, we're going to send Mike Napoli up there. 
we've got, you know, a pretty good pinch hitter on the bench. Yes, Trevor Rosenthal's a dominating right-hander. Yes, Napoli uh, doesn't do as well against right-handers as he does against left-handers, but we're never going to get Napoli against a left-hander in a late-game situation. You're going to have to have Napoli facing a right-hander uh, to not use him just because it's not the perfect situation and you're waiting for something better. Uh, that seems to be, uh, you know, maybe one of these, the perfect is the enemy of the good situations where, you know, Napoli against Rosenthal, not the best situation, but it might be the best one you're going to get. Yeah, and it should be noted, and I don't know if it makes a difference, but if we're looking at platoon splits, um, Rosenthal is a pitcher who survives off of his fastball, which I would assume, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, would have, as a pitcher, would have less of a t- platoon split than if he, you know, had like a wipeout slider. Right. I mean, Rosenthal is good against righties and lefties. Uh, so this is not a, you know, a typical right-on-right specialist that's going to destroy Napoli, but at the same time, he's a very good right-handed reliever. He's very good against right-handers too. Uh, I think, the only argument you can use for not pinch hitting Napoli there is there's two outs in the ninth inning. Uh, you would expect that you're not going to be able to score unless Napoli goes yard. The odds of hitting a home run off Trevor Rosenthal not particularly high. So maybe you think you're wasting Napoli in a situation in which the overall inning outcome is probably not scoring anyway, and you'd rather wait and save Napoli uh, for a situation where there's maybe you know just a hit scores a run instead of needing a home run. Um, I think in the ninth inning, when you're facing a Cardinals team that's pretty good, especially if you're trying to not use Koji Uehara and you're sticking with Brandon Workman against the Cardinals lineup, you shouldn't expect the game to go, you know, three more innings to where you're going to get another chance to let Napoli hit. Trevor Rosenthal had nearly a 15% swinging strike rate on his uh, his fastball this year, according to the pitch FX data. That's got to be close to the best in the uh, in the in the league. Uh, yeah, I think so. His fastball is really like a combination of overpowering velocity and pretty good deception. He's not one of these guys who really like releases his arm slot way to the side, gives hitters a really clear view of where it's coming from. He's got a little bit of, uh, of hidden ball uh, aesthetics in his delivery, and then it's 99. So yeah. uh, I think the combination of those two things makes him very tough to hit. Yeah, he uh, yeah he's he's very good. When I, I I can't really does he throw more than that? I mean I know he does throw more than that one pitch, but I don't I don't think he's done it a lot in the in the playoffs. No, he I mean so he's got a really good curveball and a okay changeup, which is one of the reasons why there's some thought that he could eventually maybe move back into the starting rotation as like Adam Wainwright did. Uh, and you know I think there's probably a legitimate case to be made that Rosenthal could be a pretty good starting pitcher. Uh, in the postseason though, he's just said, "Here's my fastball. You can't hit it." Ha ha. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, well, let's see. Today we're recording this on Monday. There is a there's another game today. Yep. Uh, we got Lester Wainwright. Those are you know probably the two best starters, right? I mean, uh, Lester's been the seems the only one who's been. Uh, uh, very dependable for the Red Sox. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, John Lackey's been pretty good too. Uh, you know, and pitched a, a solid inning in relief last night. Uh, so I think, you know, the Red Sox have two good starting pitchers. Uh, you know, after that it gets, you know, Jake Peavy, uh, should be good, has not been very good in the postseason. Um, you know, I think you could say he's still a good pitcher, but has not recently performed all that well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Lackey and Lester, I think, is a is a good one too. Same thing with the Cardinals. I think that you know uh, Wainwright and Waka is a pretty good one too. So these next two games, I think, are pretty evenly matched. Uh, game seven, uh, when it switches over to PV Joe Kelly, I don't think either of the teams love 
that starter on the mound in Game 7 of the World Series. So I think uh, either side, I mean, for obvious reasons, would love to win the next two games. Uh, but whoever wins tonight, I think winning to, winning again on Wednesday and not letting this go to a Game 7 going to be somewhat important because for both teams, this is going to be their their two best guys taking the mound and the guys that they could say, you know what, I could really see this pitcher throwing seven or eight innings of dominating performance before I hand it to my closer. Right. And so and so Game 7... Uh, um, were it to occur would be uh, that would be an all out uh, all out battle in terms of uh, you would expect the way that the managers would utilize their bullpens. Yeah, and I think uh, you know kind of uh, I mean it won't certainly won't matter in Boston uh, for the people who are in Fenway, but I think there's a little bit of scheduling snafu here on Major League Baseball's part. Game seven would happen Thursday evening. Uh, game seven also happens to be Halloween. I think a, a large percentage of uh, people who want to watch the World Series probably have kids who are interested in receiving free candy uh you know i know like craig calcaterra has posted on twitter like his daughter's been like texting him like insane and mad that the the red sox won last night and now that there's a game six and she really wants craig to be home uh so they can go trick-or-treating on thursday night uh you know i think if, if major league baseball had the chance to do it over maybe they shouldn't have had game seven end up on a pretty popular holiday so uh or maybe people shouldn't have kids i think is what i hear you saying Right. Yes. Abortions for everyone. Well, we'll I'm not end, saying we'll end that the is. podcast on that. <laughs> it's not. It's not precisely what I mean. I think abstinence <laughs> is the uh, is the most is the most direct. I'm sure that uh, I'm sure that there are are um there's a there's a robust minority of fangrass readers who practice abstinence, whether it's yeah right, not, <laughs> not intentional. They need to or not enforced abstinence. Yeah. Uh, right. I mean, I do, and and I'm married, so that's right. uh, yeah. Oh, there yeah. you are. All right. Uh, well, Dave Cameron, been, uh, it's been informative and embarrassing. Uh, that is our goal. That's our goal. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. That's, uh, it's Dave Cameron, the managing editor of Fangraphs. That must feel good just to go, to walk around and be the managing editor of Fangraphs. Well, it would feel better if people knew what Fangraphs was. I mean, in real life. Anyway. That's true. Walking around yeah. town is not so much. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. All right. Dave Cameron, I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been a, uh, this is, this has been a, I think a great episode of Fangraphs Audio. 